0: Funds for Bookworm are provided in part by Lannan Foundation.
1: Where would we be without bobs? Where would we be without gulose It's a rhetorical question, sir, but where would we be without books? Be without-
0: From KCRW and KCRW.com, I'm Dave Eggers. Welcome to a bookworm retrospective show, a celebration of 33 years of bookworm on KCRW with Michael Silverblatt. Michael recorded more than 1,600 bookworm conversations. He is on hiatus now for health reasons. I first met Michael in 2000 upon publication of my first book, the memoir with the obnoxious title. We spoke many times over the following 22 years and we became friends. I am grateful for his kindness and intelligence and his abiding passion for everything he read. He is a singular figure in the literary community, perhaps this country's best reader, a devoted reader who could find the hidden touchstone of every book he discussed with its author. Today's show continues what novelist Russell Banks called the story of America. We will hear excerpts of bookworm shows which discuss slavery, race, and history. In 2003, Michael talked with Edward P. Jones about his Pulitzer Prize-winning novel, The Known World.
2: Today, I'm very honored to have as my guest Edward P. Jones. His new book is his first novel, The Known World. He's written a book of short stories called Lost in the City. And I have to tell you that when I read The Known World, I knew I was holding in my hands a book of great, beauty, but more than that importance, a book that people are going to be reading for years. Mm-hmm. Its the central event, the stout stick, I think, that Sally Gordon once told Flannery O'Connor, you needed to start a novel, you <laughs> needed to plant a stout stick somewhere, is the death of the master, Henry Townsend. And we learn within a couple of paragraphs that Henry Townsend was a black man, mm-hmm. That he owned 33 slaves, that he was uh, 31 years old. Mm-hmm. Um, and from that point on, in a sense, we leave the known world. Yeah. In other words, whatever we know about slavery and its mm-hmm. justifications are going to be stood on their head. Yes. When had you first
1: learned that there were slave owning black families? And- and sometime in college and uh i don't remember if if a professor mentioned it in passing or if it was some footnote um i just remember coming upon that and being rather quite surprised of course because up until then slavery had always been black and white you know and here you come across this this thing where black people uh, participated in a system that was oppressing everyone else There's very little judgment in the book. We're not making our way through
2: these pages, by and large, saying, how could they, white or black, they are living in a world that seems to have generated the idea of slavery before they've come into it, and... The black families say, "Well, you know, there are slaves in the Bible. Yeah. God accepts it. Yep. You know, there's. Yeah. I was a slave. Yes. Part of rising in the world is to own mm-hmm. other people. Yeah. This is a mark of how far I've come.
1: Exactly. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And it seemed to me, since I had read that that your mother did not read or write, yeah. Yeah. that the oral traditions. Are very much a part of what you're bringing to this book. Can yeah. you tell me about
1: that? Yeah, when when I was growing up, my my, my mother, um, she uh, she was most comfortable around women who were far older than she was because she wasn't a party person. She wasn't a drinker. Her whole life was, was her children, uh, and we would on Sundays, particularly, would go to um, friends of hers, older women, and. In between my reading my funny books, or we call them comic com, we'll call them comic books, I would listen to what they were talking about. Uh, and this sense of words and how they come across and you create pictures in your mind with what people are saying, I think that sort of started there. For me, um, it's all about creating pictures. I wanted to show how just topsy-turvy this whole place was, you know, starting, of course, with that sort of... Um, Three hundred, four hundred year old map that the sheriff has on the jail cell of the, in the jail, and it's a, it's a it's a weird look. If the description I have of it is that you know it's, if you looked at it, I suppose you would have thought that a child had made that because Florida is missing, North America is not called North America, doesn't have a name, South America is called South America, but I wanted to show in that thing um, how really strange this world was. Uh, Moses, the overseer, the black overseer, mentions, you know, um, it was already a strange world when he was owned by white people. And now it's really, really strange now that he's owned by a black person. And he asks, you know, is God even up there anymore attending to business? Uh, and that's what he's, it's what, that, all of them can ask that, you know, because everything is just so thrown up into the air there. I mean, a free man has been free for a long time, Can, you know, in seconds, all of a sudden be a slave again? We're getting
2: an aerial view as well of a time where we still don't understand Mm. our own morality. Yeah. We're being asked to look at the past, 1855, Mm. from above, but none of the questions that are involved in issues of slavery, have
1: been solved. No. Slavery has been abolished. Yeah, and they for, went on with their lives. No yes. one sat around and said, let's discuss this. How do we get into this, and where do we go from here? And what does it
2: mean, and, and and who are we that we would do such a exactly.
1: thing? Exactly, yeah,
2: yeah. And that seems to
1: be what the book is on the verge of. Yeah, yeah. I think, I think it has a lot to do with the way the country is. America doesn't like to ask a lot of hard questions. You know, it it has a certain myth about itself, and it puts that out out there for the world to see. Slavery ended with the Civil War, went on with their lives. No one ever sat around and said, you know, let's discuss this. Let's talk about this for ourselves
0: and for the future of this country. That was Edward P. Jones discussing his novel, The Known World. In 2021, Michael spoke with Honoré Fanon Jeffers about her novel, The Love Songs of W.E.B. Du Bois. Du Bois was the great historian, sociologist, and civil rights activist who was 95 when he died in 1963.
2: Today, I'm very excited to have as my guest a first-time novelist, but a woman who's written five books of poetry. Her name is Honoré Fanon Jeffers, and her book is The Love Songs of W.E.B. Du Bois. I think I'm talking to the author of a great American novel. Not just a great American novel, a great American feminist novel, and a great American black feminist novel. All three things. Now, this book is called The Love Songs of W.E.B. Du Bois, and it begins with an epigraph from... W.E.B. Du Bois. Um, it's an epigraph from Of
3: the Sorrow Songs. Would you read that for us, honoree? Certainly. They that walked in darkness sang songs in the olden days, sorrow songs, for they were weary at heart. And so before each thought that I have written in this book, I have said a phrase, a haunting echo of these weird old songs in which the soul of the black slave spoke to men. Ever since I was a child, these songs have stirred me strangely. They came out of the South unknown to me, one by one, and yet at once I knew them as of me and of mine. That's W.E.B. Du Bois,
2: and he calls... These Things, Sorrow Songs, and you call this book The Love Songs of W.E.B. Du Bois. Could you distinguish between a sorrow song and a love song?
3: Well, I think that um, for me, there's not that much difference between a love (laughs) song and a sorrow song because... Dr. Du Bois was referring to the traditional spirituals, what we used to call when I was a little girl, the traditional Negro spirituals. And he really loved Southern black people, very much so. Now,
2: history is very important to this novel, and yet it is a novel, a historical novel. Your last book of poetry is also a historical work.
3: For me, history isn't just about documents, you know, static pages covered with dust. History, for me, <laughs> is a living thing. It's people, and and so... You know, I've been in the archives, you know, off and on since I was a very young girl um, in my early 20s. So, you know, a little over 30 years I've been in the archives. And um, there's something about the people that I encounter, you know, mostly African-Americans I do research on. And they they speak to me. I think of the great Toni Morrison, although, of course, I'm not anywhere near Toni Morrison, she was a genius and we were blessed to be walking the same earth as her. Um, but she, she would talk about the fact that whenever she started a new book that she always had a question that she wanted to answer. And so in this book, um, one of the questions I was curious about or several questions I was curious about uh, were how did we get to this place? How do we get to this place as a country? How did we get to this place as a black community when I'm when I'm speaking about my own culture? You start
2: out with the first love song, which is a history of indigenous people on this plot of land. The land will be stolen from them. It will be stolen from them many times over. What we learn about the cruelty of the white men who were destroying the indigenous people and creating a place where slavery was the law. This is very painful reading as I understand it It is now called Afro-Indigenous culture, and I think you identify it as Black Red culture. And we're not reading just about Black culture. We're talking about the joining of the African-American spirit with the spirit of the Indigenous people.
3: When you grow up in the South, there's a romance that certain white Southerners, not all, okay, so I want to be very fair here, but certain white Southerners have about the South, um, and they create these fictions that slavery was very benevolent, that African Americans who have white ancestry that goes back to slavery, that these relationships were consensual. And one of the things when I, would f- when I first began my poetry career and I would go places and I would read poetry, there would always be, you know, an elderly white lady that would come up to me and tell me that I reminded her of the maid or the nanny that had reared her. And when I was a younger woman, that would really infuriate me it would It would really make me mad and you know because I'd always be wearing a beautiful outfit, and I'd always you know be have on makeup and all of that, and I'd be very poised and you know articulate et cetera et cetera and And then, I think it was maybe five years into writing this book. Where I began to think about, you know, these older white ladies who had spoken about these these nannies and these maids and these cooks, and they would always refer to them as family. I loved, you know, Sally as much as I loved my own mother, et cetera, et cetera. And I thought, what if instead of leaning away from family? I leaned toward it. What would it mean to have a multiracial family and to have white members of the family who were in power over black members of the family who, who, you know, would not change Jim Crow?
2: I had a black boyfriend who told me that he was ashamed that his parents had never moved away from Watts. And when I got to see their house, I said to him, what are you talking about? These are people who own a beautiful little house on a beautiful piece of property. How can you be ashamed? And he said, of course, because Watts is the ghetto, and I wanted my parents to move from the ghetto. Now your book, the Love Songs of W.E.B. Du Bois is full of issues of this kind, and I haven't seen them discussed in fiction before. And I have to tell you how profoundly moved I was by the developments in this
3: book. Well, thank you. I grew up in de facto segregation uh, because I was born in 1967. But one of the things that I wanted to depict alongside of these issues of de facto and de jure segregation was also that African American communities could be joyful. And so we see that in Chickasetta. We see the sort of joyful, um, even in the midst of inherited sorrow, we see this joy in communities. One of the things that I wanted to do is to present African American communities in a straight, no chaser way, in a way that did not shrink from the way that we use language, did not shrink from our flaws, but also did not shrink from our beauties. African-American uh, intellectual communities, such as at Rutledge College. You know, there's a quote by W.B. Du Bois that says, you misjudge us because you do not know us. And I I wanted people everyone. I wanted African Americans to see ourselves as only we see ourselves in secret gatherings. And I wanted non-Black people to see us.
2: Honore has done the remarkable job of insisting that sexuality of every kind, bisexuality, homosexuality, heterosexuality, and even monastic sexuality be covered in this book. Now, I know from many Black friends, this is a real subject in the Black community. How do you... Go beyond the boundaries of heterosexuality into a world where everything is possible and exists. Can you speak about this?
3: Well, I I, I feel like for me it was easy because it <laughs> exists in black communities. I mean, it's not like we don't have a full range of sexuality. Um, a full range of gender. I started to do historical research. I was like, I don't know enough about the history of Georgia. And in particular, I didn't know enough about the history of indigenous pre-colonial Georgia. And when I started doing research, I came upon a very um, disturbing fact. And that was that the... Age of intimate consent, I'm using a hopefully graceful term here, in mm. Georgia was 10 years old. No. For free white children. And I realized that if free white children had no protection from the law, then free black children had even less but this is a black feminist novel, so I focus on, on on um women. We have had to go it alone in protecting ourselves. You know, very few people look out for black women. Black women haven't been protected, but this is our time now. This is Our time to walk into the light and to have our voices known and to understand what we have not only done for our community, but indeed for this country. I had to expand my vision. I had to move beyond writing a family story to a story about America writ large.
0: That was Honoré Fanon Jeffers. This is the second of three shows to explore the history of America in fiction. We'll be back after this short break.
4: I want to tell you about a new show from the Financial Times called Life and Art from FT Weekend, hosted by me, Lila Raptopoulos. Life and Art is twice a week. On Mondays, I have a guest on to talk about life and how to live a good one. Everything from winter travel to cooking to living more creatively. And on Fridays, we talk art, Two FT journalists and I discuss a piece of culture that's in the air, new music, movies and more. Find life and art from FT Weekend wherever you listen.
0: This is Dave Eggers and in today's Bookworm retrospective show, we're hearing writers discuss the story of America. Michael spoke frequently with Marilyn Robinson. In 2005 he talked with her about her Pulitzer Prize winning novel Gilead.
2: Today I'm very honored to have as my guest Marilyn Robinson, the author of Gilead, published by Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux. I first wanted to ask you if you could describe the intimacy of this novel.
5: I think that um, I think that a sort of question that focused the novel for me, that was central from the beginning, was the question of how one. Absolutely loved, and um, I thought of when a when a when a man has a child, when a, a parent or a good parent has a child, the their presence when they're with you as children makes you feel that under no circumstance could you ever cease to love them, under no circumstance could you ever cease to forgive them. Now
2: here we are in 1956, which is the present tense of the book. Mm-hmm. Um, the narrator, 76 years old approximately, is writing a notebook for his seven-year-old son to someday read. And he is writing the book because he's been told that he has a heart problem and that there is something for him that proves the existence of God in the world, and that is beauty.
5: Mm-hmm. One of the things that I have been interested in to do in my life is make a vision of the world that pleased me. You know what I mean? I feel as if I've been building and expanding my vision of the world. Sometimes I write it down. Sometimes I don't, you know. Um, but it's very important to me. It's not a, it is the central product of my life, and anything else that I produce is, is secondary, you know. I would say as a statement of fact that, the, that, that, that reality is dazzling. You know, um, and that the capacity of human perception is dazzling, and that these things exist in a very profound and beautiful relationship with each other. And I think that that the centrality of that conviction is so intense for me that anything I do will reflect it. It's what interests me. It's what I love.
2: It seems to me that that you know, it, it's it's the role it's Emerson. That that the poetic version of that vision is in the transcendentalist movement. Is that
3: correct?
5: I think you're exactly right. I, I, the the 19th century Americans are my great love. It's a deep, essential part of my sense of reality. I believe in God, um, not even knowing what the phrase means. You know, I don't want to imply that I know what it means to believe in God. I think that. For example, I think that the absence that people feel defines God for them. You know what I mean? That to, to have the sense of lack or deprivation is to have the sense of the thing lacked. These are people, many of whom um, I admire in the sense that they gave up privileged places in New England or New York. And they, they were so appalled by slavery that they felt that they could not excuse themselves from the problem, you know. Um, And, you know, slavery was terrible. It it was an incredibly brutal, degrading uh, institution, degrading to the people who were slave owners, as Jefferson and others have pointed out, degrading to the whole society.
2: The Midwestern ministers had moved many of them from the East to Kansas in the desire to make sure that Kansas and certain other states would not enter the Union as slave states. Yes. Mm-hmm. And so they, their homes and their churches are thrown up in the midst of huge contention. Yes. You mentioned that they were built not to become venerable, but in fact to become shabby because they were contingent. Yes, There were churches that would probably not last, and yet everyone stays and builds colleges.
5: Mm -mm. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, one of the interesting things about the settlement of the Middle West is that these people, when they came out, did build colleges. It was one of the first things they were up to. Um, Places like... Oberlin and Grinnell and Knox College and Carlton College and all these they were founded typically by people from Yale or Andover or Amherst one of those little cluster of radical schools and the idea was that that they would create these colleges where you know that were integrated and that Admitted women sometimes equally, sometimes in special little you know barnard style you know separate campus thing but but in general for by the standards of the time, they were very good feminists you know um, they had what was called the manual labor system, which meant that everybody that came to the college did the work that was needed to keep a college running, which meant then feeding the hogs and so on um, everybody did it, the president of the college did it, you know um some of these people that came out were extremely distinguished people in, the, in New England, people like Edward Beecher, who was the first president of Illinois College, which is one of the earliest ones. These colleges were always on the Underground Railroad. They ran printing presses and so on. They printed so much abolitionist material, which they mailed into the South, that Southern postmasters would often just burn the mail rather than <laughs> trying to sort out the abolitionist documents. Um, They, you know, they were, uh, but they would they would put up a a college, you know, teaching Greek, all that stuff, and then they would they would also build a church because almost inevitably they were ministers. These people that were starting the colleges, and then they would take they would buy land from the government very cheaply, but when they had built these institutions, then it became very valuable. Land, relatively speaking, because people wanted to live around them. So then they could endow the college with the money that they made, the difference between what they'd spent on the land and what they sold it for. And then they would, and then of course this made little abolitionist communities, you know. And then they would send students as missionaries out into the Middle West to preach abolition, which they did very effectively. And uh, so it was a whole system. It was a very ingeniously worked out system, you know, um, which had the effect of of, uh, not only making sure that the slave economy didn't move into the Middle West, but also of preparing, I mean, standards of social reform and social advance and so on that were enormously forward-looking. When I started reading about abolitionism, which i just I did because I was living in the in Iowa, and I wanted to know where I was and that for me always means finding out the history of a place and I found this beautiful history that nobody you know everybody will say, "Oh yes, my great grandfather was in the underground railroad," but they don't notice or think about you know the whole implication of the fact that many towns were many you know in many states, but in any case uh it's the, the fact that this could could have happened and could be forgotten, and that and you know enormous setbacks occurred in terms of race relations and so on. And people not only I mean people acted as if they were integrating colleges for the first time, as if it were a new idea, you know, utter erasure. And it makes you realize that history, does not necessarily proceed in an orderly way that the or or shall we say that there are other forces at work in it than rational understanding or or a coherent narrative you know, and that many of the things that we think we have done and accomplished, like the public school systems, for example, are things that can be lost and swept away with every consequence that that can have, every cruelty every un- injustice um it, you know, nothing that we have can be assumed. We have demonstrated a spectacular ability to lose precious things. And I think that that's really an important thing to understand right now.
0: That was Marilyn Robinson discussing her novel, Gilead. In today's Bookworm Retrospective show, Michael also talked with Edward P. Jones and Honoré Fanon Jeffers in the second of three shows about the story of America. I'm Dave Eggers. I'm grateful to KCRW for asking me to honor my dear friend Michael Silverblatt for his remarkable legacy on behalf of literature and writers. This show was produced by Alan Howard and Connie Alvarez. The engineer was P.J. Shahamat. Bookworm and this retrospective are made possible by Lannan Foundation.
1: I am a book- a bookworm. She's a bookworm. We are a bookworms. I am a bookworm. We are
0: Funds for Bookworm are provided in part by Lannan Foundation, this program is produced in the studios of KCRW Santa Monica. You can access archives of all Bookworm programs and podcasts, the most recent ones, at kcrw.com/bookworm. The Bookworm themes were composed and performed by Ron and Russell Mayle of Sparks. this, this,
3: this, I am a bookworm, he is a bookworm, she is a book.